Good news. I have good news. In the midst of all that is going on in the world right now, in the midst of all the turmoil and upheaval, in the midst of the massive warp speed changes in every dimension of our lives, in the midst of the shifting cultural, moral, economic, political, and technological landscape, I have good news for us, really good news. Actually, it is Jesus who has the good news for us. The good news I have for us is the good news Jesus has for us. Jesus of Nazareth has good news for us. Here it is. Ready? Really good, good news. Ready? I will build my church. It's one of the greatest promises Jesus ever made. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In the midst of all the confusion and division that marks life in the cities of our world, Jesus makes the promise, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Now, whenever we focus on just one of Jesus' promises, we need to do so aware of the context in which Jesus originally made the promise. So, I invite you to come with me into a story told by a former tax collector named Matthew, one of Jesus' first disciples. The story is found in a book he wrote, now called The Gospel According to Matthew. Gospel simply means good news. The good news, according to Matthew, is the first of four Gospels that we have in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Oh, mercy. Where would we be without these four Gospels? Matthew tells the story in chapter 16 of his book, in verses 13 through 28. Matthew 16, 13 through 28. Wherein we hear Jesus in a very dark place make his promise, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Hear the word of God. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people, who do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter uh, the chief spokesman for the first group of disciples, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by humans, but my father, by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples 
not to tell anyone just yet that he was the Christ, the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of humans. Then Jesus said to all the disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good would it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let us pray. Dear God, we are so grateful for the four Gospels and for this first Gospel, the Gospel according to Matthew. And we thank you that Matthew was able to remember this scene and to accurately record it for us. And we thank you for this great promise you make in the midst of this story and pray that this promise would come alive for us as never before, for we pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. I, I will build. I will build my church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it, will not prevail against it. When we begin to grasp who this I is, and when we begin to grasp what this I means by the word church, we realize that his promise not only has implications for understanding what is going on right now in the present moment in history, his promise has implications for our understanding of the whole of church history. Indeed, his promise has implications for our understanding of the whole of world history. It turns out that reading world history through the lenses of Jesus' great promise helps us more accurately interpret the past, analyze the present, and forecast the future. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell have tried many times. In nearly every part of the world where Jesus has built and is building his church. And at times, it seems that the gates of hell are prevailing. I cannot imagine what our sisters and brothers are going through in other parts of the world where spies record and report pastors' sermons to suspicious authorities, or where church buildings are burned, or worse, where church members are murdered. 
In our part of the world, here in Vancouver, British Columbia, the church is not under overt assault. Rather, the church doesn't even seem to matter. The church is not even on the cultural radar screen, unless we do something stupid, which sometimes we do, and then we get all kinds of attention. As you know, cities all over the world are being redesigned. New cities are being envisioned right in the middle of the old. And what strikes me about these designs is that there are no spaces set aside for churches or mosques or synagogues or temples. IKEA is proposing to build the ideal city on 26 acres of South London. There are no sacred spaces in the design. No spaces for houses of worship of any kind. Oak Ridge Mall is being redeveloped into a city within a city, a new municipal center, as the website puts it. No sacred spaces in that new municipal center. Metrotown Mall is being redeveloped into a city within a city. Stunning design. No sacred spaces in the design. The newly redesigned Brentwood Mall, scheduled to open soon, refers to itself as, quote, a global community that captures the heartbeat of humanity. Whoa, great way to think of urban planning. A global community that captures the heartbeat of humanity. Massive stately condominium towers, SkyTrain station, Starbucks, Nike, London Drugs, TD Canada, Cineplex, state-of-the-art gym. No sacred spaces. Heartbeat of humanity and no sacred spaces of any kind? As painful as that is and as disturbing as it is, it does not finally affect the realization of Jesus' promise. For it turns out that Jesus does not need cities to set apart space for him to build his church. It's really nice when that happens, but he doesn't need cities to set apart spaces for him to build his church. Given who he is, he will always find a way to fulfill his promise. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When Jesus first made his promise, the world was in great turmoil. Although most people were not constantly bombarded by the fact, as we are, given that there was no mass media, no, no Facebook or Instagram. Many revolutionary forces were at work throughout the Roman Empire, and especially in the Roman-occupied Israel-Palestine area. Some of these movements were employing peaceful ends to advance their cause. Most were opting for violence of one sort or another. Most had grown impatient, longing for justice, and were taking matters into their own hands using methods of terrorism. In that context, Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So let us focus on this promise and do so by asking two questions. First question, who is this I who makes the promise? 
And a second question, what does this I mean by church? Who is this I? And what does he mean by the word church? First question, who is this I? Who is this I who speaks so confidently in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds? Now, many of you know the answer and long to hear it again. Indeed, in times like this, we need to hear it again. Unless we know who this I is, his promise can ring hopelessly idealistic and even naive. Matthew tells us that when Jesus made this promise, he and his, Jesus and his disciples were making their way through the district of Caesarea Philippi. He's referring to a number of villages and towns at the base of beautiful Mount Hermon in what is now called the Golan Heights. I've had the privilege of visiting that place many times. And what we need to know about Caesarea Philippi is that it was a very dark place. It was the darkest place Jesus ever visited in his earthly ministry. And one of the most pluralistic places Jesus visited. Early on, it was called Panaeus, or Panaeus, in honor of the Greek god Pan, the all. It was also called Balinus, in honor of the Canaanite god, the fertility god, Baal. In 3 BC, Philip the Tetrarch of Galilee changed it to Caesarea, in honor of the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus, who by that time was being hailed as Son of God. In that spiritually dark place, in that complex, pluralistic context, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Actually, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. The disciples report the different things that various people are saying. Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Now, as inadequate as those answers may be, they at least move in the right direction. Jesus, at minimum, is a prophet. Then, in that pluralistic context, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Now, I'm emphasizing the context because Spiritual darkness and pluralism is nothing new for Jesus. Spiritual darkness and pluralism do not intimidate Jesus. He can hold his own in any multicultural, multi-religious context. He knows where he is speaking. Pan, Baal, Caesar, Muhammad, Buddha, Brahma. And he is not afraid to raise the question of his identity in such a world, and neither should his disciples be afraid. In the district of Caesarea Philippi, Peter, as I mentioned, chief spokesperson for this first band of disciples, answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ. The word means Messiah. You are Messiah, anointed one. The one about whom the living God made tremendous promises. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy, waters will break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. When Messiah comes, he will overcome all that threatens the shalom of God. He will bring the shalom of God. He is the shalom of God. You are the Christ, the Messiah. 
in his first public speaking engagement in the synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus is handed a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He turns to chapter 61 and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus sits down and then he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus really likes this word today. You are the Christ, Messiah, anointed one, promised one. You are the one in whom all the hopes of all the years are embodied and fulfilled. Who fulfills all those hopes in a surprising way? Must go to Jerusalem. Jesus responds to Peter, Messiah must go and suffer and be killed and be raised up on the third day. No way, says Peter. <laughs> no way must Messiah die. Get out of the way, says Jesus, for there is no other way. Messiah fulfills all that is expected of him by going to a cross, a cross erected by the Roman oppressors. Messiah fulfills all that is expected of him by walking into the face of evil and sin and death and letting evil and sin and death throw all it can at him. That is the eye who promises to build his church. And son of the living God, Peter says. You are the son of the living God. Now, we do not know what Peter had in mind when he spoke. We know what he meant later when he writes his own letters, after Jesus' death and resurrection. But we're not sure what he meant at that moment. He had likely heard that amazing claim Jesus had made some time before, recorded in Matthew 11, 25 to 27. Just before his, come to me, all who are weary, Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son but the Father, nor does anyone know the Father but the Son. Peter also likely had in mind Psalm 2, where in the face of nations and people groups rebelling against him, God says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And then God says to the king, you are my son. I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. So, son of the living God means God's chosen king, God's beloved son, who alone knows the Father, who alone can reveal the Father, who is the face of the unseeable God, the perfect revelation of all that God is, the one who has lived from all eternity in intimate relationship with God as God. And then, surprise, chooses to become one of us and as one of us give his life for the life of the world. That is the I who promises to build his church. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And son of man. Jesus does not just ask, who do people say I am, but who do people say the son of man is? Son of man, as I said earlier, is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. Now get this, no one in the first century would ever dare to call himself son of man. No one in the, any century dared to call himself the son of man, except Jesus of Nazareth, 
77 times in the New Testament. More than any other title, Son of Man embraces the totality of Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus uses the title of his earthly work. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He uses it in reference to his future work. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father. And Jesus uses it in reference to a time before he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now, on one level, the term was simply a Hebraic, Aramaic way of saying human being. Psalm 8, what is man that you take thought of him or the son of man that you care for him? Man and son of man are in parallel. God calls the prophet Ezekiel, son of man, 90 times. It's a way of saying human being. So in using this title of himself, Jesus is affirming solidarity with us. He is a real flesh and blood human being. The son of God becomes a man. But the term meant so much more in the first century, so much more. You see, of the 77 times used in the New Testament, 76 times it's used with the definite article, the, the Son of Man. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, not a Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man would remind people of the first century of the lead actor in God's drama of the salvation of the world. In particular, the Son of Man would remind people of a special figure we meet in the prophet Daniel. In the seventh chapter of his book, Daniel tells of a vision God gave him one night. It's a vision about the course of world history. In the vision, Daniel sees four great beasts representing four powerful world empires. And in the vision, the four beast empires are brought before the throne of God where they're judged. One of the beasts is slain, the other three lose their dominion. Then in verses 13 and 14 of Daniel 7, we're brought into a remarkable scene. Listen, listen. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. To him, was given dominion and glory and kingdoms that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Whoa. One like a son of man, a towering figure, as Eugene Peterson puts it, a commanding, redeeming, glorious figure. Now, soon after this vision was circulated, people stopped using the phrase, one like a son of man, and simply said, the son of man. In the vision, the son of man comes with the clouds of heaven. In the Bible, clouds of heaven represent divine presence. The imagery is suggesting the superhuman majesty of the son of man. It's conveying the divine likeness of the son of man. In the vision, the Son of Man does not bow down to the Ancient of Days. Everyone who enters the throne room bows down. Why not the Son of Man? Because he's a peer of the Ancient of Days. In the vision, the Son of Man does not confess sin. Confess sin was the first thing the prophet Isaiah did when he came into the presence of God. Son of Man has no sin to confess. In the vision, the Son of Man is given a kingdom 
which cannot be destroyed, a dominion that will never pass away. So, by the first century, the Son of Man referred to a pre-existent divine being who would come at the end of time, judge the nations of the world, and inaugurate the kingdom of God. The German scholar Ethelbert Stauffer put it this way, Son of Man is just about the most pretentious piece of self-description that any man in the ancient East could possibly have used. No one ever claimed to be that towering figure. No one dare do so. It is far too lofty a title. But Jesus does. And another surprise. He chooses to live the title in an unexpected way. Speaking to his disciples about leadership and power, he says in Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, which he deserved. He did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The one before whom every knee will bow gets down on his knees and washes feet. That is the eye who promises to build his church. The Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the Son of Man, who lives all of those titles as servant of servant. Worship leader Master, uh, Matthew Westerholm captures the implications for me of this song in his song, First Place. Every inch of this universe belongs to you, O Christ, for, throw, for through you and for you it was made. Your creation endures by order of your hand, so you must in all things have first place. That is the rock upon which Jesus builds his church. Not Peter, but the claim Peter made and the claim Jesus made. The rock is Jesus, Messiah, Jesus, Son of God, Jesus, the Son of Man. Okay, so the second question what does Jesus mean by this word church? I will build my church. Now, clearly he's not referring to a building, <laughs> although it sure helps to have a building. And he's clearly not referring to an institution, although every grouping of human beings needs some sort of institutional form, some kind of polity. Maybe you've heard the saying before, where two or more are gathered together, there is politics. So what does Jesus mean by my church? Ah, this word is yet another surprise. It's the word ecclesia, from which we get the English words ecclesiastical or ecclesiology. And it's another surprise because, as Larry Hurtato of Scotland points out, in the first century, ecclesia was not a religious word. Not a religious word. There were many other words that did have religious overtones, like theosos. Theosos refers to a group of people gathered around a particular deity. Jesus does not say, I will build my theosos, although his church does gather around to worship him and his Father and the Spirit. Another word, eranos. It refers to a group holding religious festivals. Jesus does not say, I will build my Iranus, although the church does have feasts like Christmas and Easter and Pentecost. 
Another word is koinon, related to koinonia, referring to fellowship around a god. Jesus does not say, I will build my koinon, although clearly his church is a fellowship, a fellowship with and in God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Another word, synatos, people meeting around a particular teaching. Jesus does not say, I will build my synatos, my synod, although his church does seek to understand and obey his teaching. And yet there's another word, synagogue, people gathered to study and live Torah, the law of God, and to listen to the prophets. Jesus does not say, I will build my synagogue, although his church does seek to understand and live out the vision of the law and the prophets. He uses none of those religiously oriented words. Instead, I will build my ecclesia. Now, why? The word is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to refer to Israel as, quote, the congregation of the Lord. It's used when God summoned his people to assemble for some new act of obedience. My ecclesia, says Jesus. My assembled congregation. When we gather as his church, in person or virtually, it's because he has summoned us. He summoned us for a fresh encounter with him. On one level, you and I chose to be here today. But on another level, he summoned us. You woke up out of bed this morning because he summoned you. As Christ, the Messiah, he summons us. Come, come into my life, receive my spirit. Let me anoint you with my anointing. As son of God, he summons us. Come, come into my relationship with my father. I will teach you my father so you can trust him the way I trust him. As son of man, he summons us. Come, come into my kingdom. Come into my new world order that is breaking into the old. We are his ecclesia. We are his summoned assembly. Somebody say, hallelujah. But in addition to working with the Old Testament meaning of the word, Jesus is also working with what the Greeks and Romans meant by the word. Now, get this, get this. Ecclesia refers to the gathering of citizens of a city to conduct civic business. Let me repeat that. Ecclesia refers to the summoning or gathering of citizens of a city to conduct civic business. Now, although just about every event in Roman and Greek society involves some reference to the gods, an ecclesia was not a religious event. It's the gathering of competent citizens of the city to conduct the important business of the city. Wow. The Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, is assembling his ecclesia in the city. He's assembling his people to conduct the important business of the city. Talk about essential workers. But of course, for the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, he is the true ruler of every city. Right? Right? He is Messiah for every city of the world. 
He's son of God in every city of the world. He's son of man over every city of the world. Right? So, in order to conduct his business in every city of the world, Jesus is forming his ecclesia in every city of the world. When we gather as the church of Jesus Christ, we gather to do the important work of running the city with Jesus. This is a civic event with civic implications, which is why I often say that the well-being of the city is at stake in the well-being of the ecclesia of Jesus. Or turn it around, the health of any city is directly related to the health of the church in the city. Being church is important for the city. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. That's the implication of being the son of man. So we can make this affirmation a little more contemporary. Jesus is mayor of mayors, right? Jesus is premier of premiers, right? Jesus is president of presidents, right? Jesus is prime minister of prime ministers, right? Right? I could use a thumbs up emoji. And as mayor of mayors, he assembles his city council to conduct the important business of the city. Jesus loves the cities of the world, even if they do not set aside space for him to build the church. The Messiah loves the cities of the world. The Son of God loves the cities of the world. The Son of Man loves the cities of the world. And in his love, he is building his city council into the cities of the world, through whom, then, he is building new cities. Cities of refuge, where people find mercy. Cities of justice, where people find dignity and freedom. Cities of, whole, of peace, where people are made whole again. That is what Jesus means by my church. I will build my ecclesia and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Not prevail. Not prevail. Yes, Jesus is saying the gates of hell will not prevail against his church when the gates of hell come against his church. But what Jesus is especially saying is that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church when his church prevails against the gates of hell. When his church lives as the church, the church begins to push up against the gates of hell. And the kingdom of God begins to break into the darkness and confusion, into the chaos and, and oppression, into the fear of death. So the question is, are you in? <laughs> are you in what Jesus is building? All over the world, he is summoning his ecclesia. Are you in? Can you confess today that Jesus is Messiah? Can you confess today that Jesus is the Son of the living God? Can you confess today that Jesus is the Son of Man? And will we, like Messiah, choose the way of the cross and lay down our lives for the good of the city? Will we, like the Son of God, choose to spend our lives that the city might find life in him? And will we, like the Son of Man, choose to not be served, but serve? that the people of this city might flourish. Such good news. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Not prevail, not prevail. Why? 
Why not prevail? Because the gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus. And how do I know that? Because they did not prevail against Jesus when they tried to prevail against Jesus. Oh, how they tried. On Good Friday, on that afternoon when Jesus walked right into the gates of hell, on the cross, the gates of hell tried their best. They tried to prevail over him. And it appeared that they did. But on the third day, just as he promised, on Easter morning in the cemetery where they had laid his body, he rose up. Jesus got up, never to die again. So once more, news, good news. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the people of God in heaven and on earth together declare, Amen, Lord, so be it.